Uh, greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at uh, Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Well, we've been on uh, two parallel sermon series for the last several weeks, uh, the By Design series, where we are addressing some of the topics around gender and sexuality. And the other series that we've been on is a study of the first letter of John. And that will be our focus this weekend. Now, let me give you a context in which uh, this letter was written. The apostle John was uh, forced to leave Jerusalem, like many other apostles, because of intense persecution. And John migrated to the Roman province of Asia, which we would call today as modern-day Turkey. And his ministry thrived in this new place. And many became followers of Christ. But some members of the community strayed away from the apostolic teachings and formed their own rival groups. As a result, there were uh, theological and behavioral concerns in the church. These false teachings created confusion in the minds of even believing Christians. So John wrote this letter with a twofold purpose. First of all, he wanted to clear the air of all these false teachings, and bring the believers back to the basics of the Christian faith. Therefore, John counters false teachings head-on in this letter. And secondly, because of the confusion caused by the rival groups, even those who were sincere believers started doubting their faith. So John wrote this letter to bolster their assurance of salvation. So challenge and affirmation goes hand in hand in this letter. John is ruthless in condemning the false teachers, but he's gentle when he speaks to the congregation God had entrusted him with. After some stern warnings in chapter 2, John interrupts the flow of thought to bring some words of affirmation to his congregation. And we find this small, encouraging section of Scripture in poetic form. As a spiritual father and as a pastor, John tenderly addresses all the age groups in his church. And as we look at the Center Street Church, it is evident that we are a multi-generational church. And today, like the Apostle John, I want to affirm the generations that are represented here in our church, across our campuses, and also speak about how Different generations can meaningfully interact with one another. So the text for today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I'm going to ask us to stand as we read this together. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Lord, I 
Thank you for the generations represented here in our church. We pray that, Lord, our hearts will receive the affirmation that you want to bring to each one of us. So we ask that you will cause your word to come alive, that you will minister to each one of us personally, that this will bring encouragement and will strengthen our walk with you. So we give this time to you, God. Lead us today by your spirit. For we ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This past year, a 69-year-old man in Netherlands went to court to change the date in his birth certificate. And he wrote these words in his petition. And nowadays in Europe and in North America, we are free people. We can make our own decisions if we want to change our name or if we want to change our gender. So I want to change my age. My feeling about my body and about my mind is that I'm about 40 or 45 years old, not 69. <laughs> well, thankfully, better sense prevailed and the court rejected his plea to reduce his age by calling this legally impossible. Well, in this world of age fluidity, it is challenging to address a sermon to the older and the younger generation. Some of the older people think they are young at heart. Some of the younger people still behave like kids. And the little kids desperately want to present themselves as older. So we are all mixed up. But don't worry, I'm going to straighten you today. <laughs> Just kidding. Today, I'm going to take the risk to speak to two distinct groups within our congregation, because that's exactly what the Apostle John does by taking time to address the older and the younger generation. There's great value in doing it. But let me make some uh, observations, first of all, from our text. You can obviously notice that there is a repetition in this passage, and that is for the purpose of emphasis and style. And John makes reference to three groups in this text, children, fathers, and young men. And this is not an exclusive reference to men alone. It will be fair to read this as children, fathers and mothers, young men and women. But here's a question that we have to grapple with from the text. Who are these three groups of people? As some Bible interpreters claim that this refers to stages of spiritual maturity. So we start off as mere infants in our knowledge of God. As our faith becomes stronger, we become adolescents, and we progress further to become spiritual parents. But as we take a closer look at the text, uh, this interpretation of varying spiritual maturity seems to be unlikely. First of all, the markers that are used to affirm the three groups of people doesn't really reflect a hierarchy of believers. In fact, all these markers can be applied to every Christian irrespective of how mature they are in their faith. And secondly, the word for children is a word John uses often in his letter. And in every one of those instances, it is a reference to his entire audience and not a specific group within. John is an elderly apostle, perhaps the only surviving apostle at the time, and he viewed all the people in his church as his children. 
So in our text, when John refers to children, it represents his entire audience. And he goes on to break them into two subgroups, fathers and young men. And I don't see fathers and young men as uh, metaphors describing maturity. There's no such indication in the text. I see John is simply affirming two different generations, the older and the younger, by highlighting their special attributes. Colin Cruz, in his uh, Bible commentary, puts it this way, that designations, father and young men, do not imply greater and lesser degrees of uh, spiritual maturity, but rather greater and lesser age levels. So keeping this in mind, let's look at what John has to say to his uh, entire audience, and then specifically what he has to say to the older and younger generations in his church. Here's verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The word because in Greek can also be translated as that. So John is saying here, I'm writing to you, dear children, that your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The children here is a reference to all believers. And that is what we all share in common. We as Christians are a forgiven people. It is the fundamental experience of the Christian life. Forgiveness from our sins is at the very heart of the gospel. Christians are not morally better off. We are not necessarily super spiritual. But this one thing is true of every follower of Jesus. We've been forgiven of our sins. I tell you, if you have been raised in the church, you hear this all the time, that it is easy to lose our sense of awe of this profound spiritual reality of forgiveness. The longing for forgiveness is universal. Driven by guilt, people of different religions do extreme acts of sacrifice in search of forgiveness. Walk on their knees on a long flight of stairs, make dangerous pilgrimages to distant lands, mortify their bodies with the hope that somehow they may find forgiveness. But as Christians, we don't earn forgiveness, we receive it. Forgiveness is God's gift, not human achievement. As our text tells us so clearly, we've been forgiven on account of his name, the name of Jesus. God remembers our sins no more because of Christ's work on our behalf. John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress illustrates this powerfully through this allegorical character called Christian on his way to the celestial city. This is my favorite part in this fictional narrative. Christian is weighed down to the depths of his soul by a burden that he cannot get rid of himself. The burden is the cumbersome weight of sin and shame that he carries on his back. It slows him down as he drags this huge baggage wherever he goes. And finally, Christian, with his heavy burden on his back, comes to the foot of the cross. And when he goes down on his knees before the cross, the burden falls off his back and tumbles to the ground, never to be seen again. And at that very moment, Christian experiences a sense of lightness in his spirit, a great sense of relief as he never 
have to carry this burden of sin any longer. He is fully set free. And what a profound imagery it is of what happens to us when we come to the foot of the cross and embrace Jesus. The power of the Christian testimony is in the fact that we can claim with utmost confidence, not because of our inherent goodness, but because of Christ's work on the cross, we are forgiven. This is not something to be decided when you die or sometime in the future, but for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, this is our present reality. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross, and we stand forgiven before God. So that's a truth that marks every follower of Christ, irrespective of where we are in our walk with Jesus. And this is a truth worth celebrating. Now John, having affirmed his whole congregation, is now going to speak to two generations, the older and the younger. There is no middle age referred here because that category didn't exist in the first century world. If you're wondering which category you belong to, there's a good chance you belong to the older category. (laughs) So what is John commending the older generation for? Twice he uses the same set of words. Here in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, interestingly, the only other place in the New Testament where believers are referred to as fathers is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers. So here in this text, Paul is giving advice to Timothy, a young pastor, on how to relate with the older folks in his church. And they're referred to here as fathers, not because of their spiritual maturity, but purely because of their age. So in the same way, John is also using the term fathers to refer to those who are advanced in years. John affirms the fathers and mothers in his congregation twice. And of all the things about the older generation of believers, this is what John highlights their knowledge of God. Now, what I'm going to say now may not be true of all older people who are Christians, but on a general scale, an older person in the congregation has been a Christian for a number of years. And that was true of John's audience. Uh, There were people in his church who had believed in Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry, so they were eyewitnesses of Jesus and the apostles. And the word knowledge here is not a reference to intellectual knowledge, but this is talking about experiential knowledge. The mothers and fathers in John's congregation have known him who is from the beginning. And the one who is from the beginning in John's writings is, of course, Jesus. There's something special about walking with Jesus for a lifetime. There is no substitute for years and years of experiential knowledge of Jesus. You know, it's for that reason I love talking to people who've been Christians for a number of years because I have a lot 
to learn from their experience of God. Unfortunately, in our day and age, we don't value what is old. Or we assume what is old is outdated. In the field of sports, a gymnast who is 20 years of age is considered too old. In most sports, you retire in your 30s. Your performance starts to decline. But not so with the spiritual life. Spiritual maturing is a lifelong process. Your spiritual growth doesn't have to be stunted in your old age, but it can actually thrive and flourish and grow. You know, God can use and has used youth in the past. No questions about that. But God has also accomplished his best work through people who are advanced in years, advanced in their life experience. Because in the latter years of your life, You have accumulated a wealth of spiritual wisdom and your heart is tender and soft before God. As a new Christian, I wanted to reach the whole world for Jesus. I had such incredible passion. But little did I know the importance of preparation, character formation, and the disciplines of the Christian life all of which take years to form. Every gardener knows this. Fruit doesn't appear overnight. It takes time to grow, and so it is with the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why the last couple of decades of our life could actually be our most fruitful and productive in terms of our influence and character formation. And if you're a retired person sitting here and you think you are well past the peak of your influence, let me challenge you to rethink that. Your influence is not over yet. You can leave a legacy behind that can impact the generations to come. Hear me. The greatest legacy that you can pass on to your children and to your grandchildren is not your money and the material things that you accumulated. The greatest legacy you can pass on to them is your faith and your experience of God. That's true riches. Now hear the cry of the psalmist. Hear his cry in Psalm 71. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Picture this, the psalmist with gray hair in his old age is pleading with God that his life will still count for his kingdom. You know, if you're an older man or a woman here, Make that your mission to declare the power of God to the next generation because we need to hear your voice. Now, our society may tell us that our career is finished at age 65, but our ministry is finished when we die until the time we are called to labor. So if you're a retired Christian, welcome to full-time ministry. (laughs) And for those of you who have been believers for many years, you possess a valuable gift 
a treasure that you can't just keep to yourself. You have the unbelievable privilege of seeing God's faithfulness over a lifetime. You have something significant to offer us. It's your story of how Jesus has helped you through the ups and downs of life. How Jesus has sustained you as a rock-solid foundation. And you need to share such God stories with the generation to come. Look at the examples in the Bible, the numerous examples of older people mentoring the young. Moses and Joshua, Eli and Samuel, Naomi and Ruth, Mordecai and Esther, Elijah and Elisha, Paul and Timothy. Numerous examples like these. And I tell you, if you walked into the early church in the first century, you would immediately notice that they were a thriving intergenerational community. Entire households were saved, and people of varying ages became part of the church family. When we study the house churches of the first century, there's enough evidence to show that most of the spiritual activities of the faith community happened when all ages were present. And that is true even today in many parts of the world. Now, there are powerful, valid reasons to gather by age or stage of life and have focused ministries to a particular group, like I'm not discrediting that, that at all. We need to wholeheartedly support and affirm our ministries to children, youth, young adults, singles, those with special needs, and seniors. But the challenge I'm bringing to us today is not just to allow our peers to be our influence, but be more open as a spiritual family for cross-generational interactions. The older generation has much to offer us and we need to honor them and learn from them. Now let's uh, look at what John has to say about the young people in his congregation. In fact, his lengthiest comments are reserved for the young men and women. Here's uh, verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Again, the word translated because can also be translated as that. I'm writing to you, young men, that you have overcome the evil one. He goes on to say again in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because or that you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if we are not careful, we can become critical of the upcoming generation and find fault with them. The older generation sometimes is guilty of that. We are a little bit suspicious of our youth. But something wonderful starts happening when we start believing in our young people because that's the affirmation they've been looking for. Now look at what God says here about the young people in our text. You are strong. The Word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. It doesn't say you need to be strong, but you are strong. Not the word of God better be living in you. It is living in you. Not you need to overcome the enemy, but you have already overcome the enemy. 
You know, if you're a young person sitting here, listen to me. God sees your potential, what you can accomplish for his kingdom. It really doesn't matter if other people notice this or not. If God notices it, that's all counts. See, the reference to the evil one in our text in 1 John is a reference to the devil. Evil forces are arrayed against God's people and especially against those who are younger in age. In fact, I don't know of a generation under greater attack than the millennials and the Gen Z. The next generation faces the brunt of satanic oppositions. There are massive attempts to derail your faith. But young people, you need to remind yourself of this, that you are strong, that the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There is fighting to be done, but the victory has already been won on your behalf. The enemy doesn't stand a chance. The Apostle John did not want the younger believers to think that just because they don't have the experience or knowledge of the older generation, that somehow they are of less value. And what did Paul write to Timothy? Now look at this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Young people, you can be role models and we can all learn from you, from your faith and from your passion. But at the same time, I'll be the first one to tell you that you can't do this alone, that you need the help of the generation above you to speak into your life to ensure that the Word of God is in you and your priorities are in the right direction. A reporter was interviewing a 104-year-old woman on her birthday, so he asked the question, what is the best thing about being 104? The woman's response was simple, no peer pressure. <laughs> See, if you're a young person battling with peer pressure, there's little value in speaking to your peers about it because they're in the same boat like you. So you need to speak to someone who has gone ahead of you and learn from their experience. Your friends who are your age are not enough. And your friends don't need to be exclusively from your generation. Find people with the experience and seek for their help. A cover story in one of the recent Faith Today magazines was on how to help youth keep faith after high school. The article quotes a, a youth ministry expert who says, the church is an intergenerational body and the nuclear family on its own is an insufficient discipleship environment. Every child, teen and young adult should have adult believers speak into his or her life in various contexts. Parents, take note of that. Your home is a vital place for spiritual formation, but a nuclear family on its own is an insufficient discipleship environment. You have 
to lean on your extended family and on your spiritual family for the formation of faith in your children. My family and I, we've been part of an intergenerational community group for close to 10 years now, ever since we came here to Canada. And we are forever grateful for the blessing that this has been to me, my wife, and our four children. Considering the fact that we have no physical family here in Canada and no help from our parents, we are very grateful that we have a spiritual family that we can lean on. I pray that many of our community groups will be places where all age groups can interact meaningfully and form strong spiritual families on mission. We have to intentionally create environments where generations can actually come together. Try inviting people of different generations to your home for a meal. We need to find ways for ministry areas in our church to work together in collaboration. I hope that our youth ministry and our seniors ministry will work together in service projects. And that will be a great learning experience for both groups. I pray that our teenagers will invest in our children. And our young adults will invest in our teenagers. And other older men and women will invest in our young adults. Young parents will be encouraged by empty nesters. That way, we will truly be like the early church, where generations don't just live in silos, but there's many opportunities for us to be able to come together, to speak into each other's lives, and to learn from one another. Let me close with this. In a relay race, the runners pass the baton from one to another before they reach the finish line. In the 2004 Summer Olympic Games in Athens, the American women's team was favored to win the gold medal in the 4 by 100 meters relay race. The team featured Marion Jones, a sprinter who had won four gold medals at the previous Olympic Games in Sydney. And in the finals, the American team was already off to a great strong start when Jones took the baton for the second leg of the race. And she ran her 100 meters extremely well. She was fast and had a considerable lead over the other teams. And all she had to do now was to pass the baton to another young teammate named Lauren Williams who would run the third leg. But Marion Jones, with all her experience, failed to successfully pass the baton onto her young teammate. She tried three times to thrust the baton forward, but each time the stick missed William's hands. And finally on the fourth try, when they made the connection, they realized that they had crossed out of the 20-yard exchange zone, and therefore they were disqualified. Now Everybody knew that they were the fastest team, but because they couldn't complete the handoff, their race was over. I want you to apply this to our Christian race. It really doesn't matter how well the previous generation runs their race. They may be passionate for God and accomplish great things for God's kingdom, but ultimate success is when we pass that baton to the next generation. And we need to do it before it is too late. 
I pray that with God's help, each one of us here will be able to declare the power of God, the faithfulness of God, and the centrality of Jesus to the next generation. The baton of faith needs to be successfully passed on from one generation to another until Jesus returns. And my prayer is that God would help us so that we don't fail in what is most important. Would you please stand as we come to an end? You know, the Apostle John's intention in including this little section of Scripture in his letter was primarily to affirm people, the people in his church, the people the generation of believers who will read this letter. And so that's what I want to do as we come to an end. I want us to leave with this deep sense of affirmation that God wants to speak over our lives. If you're a follower of Christ, you can be sure that you have been forgiven of your sins because of your faith in Jesus that you don't have to carry that baggage anymore, that you are forgiven and free. And some of you, you haven't made that decision yet, and today could very well be the day when you can lay that burden of guilt and shame that you're carrying at the foot of the cross and receive the forgiveness and the affirmation that God wants to speak into your life. God wants to affirm the believers here in our church, or older in age, who've been walking with Jesus for many years. God notices that. You've been faithful. And I know many of you by name from our church who have been so involved in investing your life in the next generation. So God commends you for that, the passion with which you have been blessing others and, and investing your life in other people. And God wants to affirm our young people, especially today. Remember that. This is how God sees you. You are strong. The word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So embrace your true identity in Christ. So let me just close our eyes right now and allow God, the Holy Spirit, to speak to us and bring this affirmation to each one of us in a personal way. After a moment of silence, I will close this in prayer. Lord, we receive the words of affirmation that you are speaking over us even right now. Thank you, God, that because of what Jesus has done for us, that we are forgiven and free, that there is a lightness in our spirit, that the burden has been lifted off our shoulders. We carry them no more. Help us, Lord, to walk in that on a day-to-day -day basis as we follow you closely 
will continue to walk in that freedom that you've given to us. God, I want to thank you for the generations that are represented in our congregation. Each generation is precious and dear to you. So I pray that, Lord, every one of us here will feel your love and affirmation right now. I thank you, God, for our seniors, the older people in our congregation, for their faith. We honor them today. We honor them for their love for you and their commitment to live for Jesus. I pray that we will learn so much from their example. I pray for our young people, Lord. We know that there is a brunt of spiritual attack that they are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Help them to be strong in you. That, Lord, they will embrace the true identity that you have given to them and they will walk in the victory over the enemy. So help us, we pray, as a church to be a vibrant, multi-generational community of believers who know how to walk in love, to speak love to each other. That, Lord, through our affirmation of one another, that we will all follow you faithfully till the very end. I pray that, Lord, you will help us and give us the grace, a passion like the psalmist, to declare your power to the next generation. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen.